I was woken up this morning by a phone call, early in the morning, from Colin's wife, Nikki. Uh, you often wonder as a pastor when you get early morning phone calls of all, for all sorts of reasons. Uh, and she said, uh, it's Nikki here, it's what you feared. Uh, Colin uh, manfully made his way through the wedding yesterday, and that's a wonderful occasion, but he's been suffering with flu and he can't speak at the moment, and I can speak a little bit. If I cough in between speaking, you'll appreciate my own problems, but uh, it is a privilege to be able to speak this morning, and when you get those kind of phone calls, you think, well, what do I speak about uh, with a couple of hours' notice? So, I want to speak on something that's been very much on my heart for these past years, particularly as I've travelled around churches sharing God's Word in various situations, but I also chose it for another reason, because it will really act as a launch to our verse of the year next year, which you'll see at the top of the bulletin, is Acts 1 verse 8, the promise of the Holy Spirit for power to witness. It will also give us an introduction to the book of Acts. We're going to be continuing through Luke's Gospel, following the Passion narrative, right up to Easter, and then after Easter we launch into the book of Acts, and we're looking forward to that in this, our 200th anniversary. Uh, next week we'll be looking at the verse of the year itself, but will you turn in your Bible then to Acts chapter 2? If you have a pew Bible, it's page 1093, 1093. We'll help to have a Bible in front of you, as always. And to save time, I'm going to read from the beginning of the chapter, then the end of the chapter. We read these remarkable events of the one of the most remarkable days in human history. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya and Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues, amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. And then what follows is Peter's explanation, and this great sermon, which I assume is a summary, it's not a summary, we should all be preaching five-minute sermons. And he comes to the conclusion in verse 36. Let's pick up the reading there. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, 
And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children, and for all who are afar off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is God's word. Let's just bow in a moment's prayer and ask God to help us to understand it. Lord, as we read this remarkable event of this remarkable day, we pray that you will help us to understand and to apply what we learn from it and what it means to us today, some 2,000 years later. That we may indeed know what it is to be filled with the Spirit and to be your witnesses. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. Uh, one summer day, some years ago, in fact it may have been the summer day, in Edinburgh that year, I decided to take a break from my study and books and take a walk down the west end of Edinburgh. It was one of those days in August where the streets were thronged with people, hurrying workers trying to grab a quick lunch, jostled with harried shoppers looking for a quick bargain, and in between were meandering, uh, meandering tourists that you have to make your way around at this time of year. However, as I passed a busy intersection, in fact, it was just, where am I? Down the road, down Rose Street, where it crosses with Castle Street. As I crossed there, I noticed something really interesting. On the opposite corner was a young man with a book in hand shouting out. If you're looking at the screen, those who are watching later, this isn't the one, but it's something like this. Found this one on the internet, whoever he is. I stopped to listen. Pretty soon I gathered... It was a Bible that he was holding in his hand. Uh, and as far as I could tell from listening for about five minutes with a couple of degrees in theology, it, it seemed to be a pretty sound message about the Christian faith and about Jesus. However, what struck me as I stood there, what was really striking was this. No one else stopped to listen at all. It was not as though some stopped to heckle him or ridicule him, let alone throw rotten fruit. No, everyone, without exception, walked past him like he was the invisible man. Now, I certainly don't want to question his motives. I couldn't help but admire his courage. But I also could not help compare what I'd just been reading at that particular time, I think it was the last time we preached through the book of Acts, 1994. I'd just been reading the story here in Acts 2, about the events that occurred in another crowded capital city almost 2,000 years previously. In the city of Jerusalem, 
On that day when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the followers of Jesus, the whole population was thrown into turmoil. Rather than ignoring them and their message, everyone wanted to know what was happening. They had questions. And in his description of these remarkable events, Luke, the historian, records two important questions in this chapter. And they act as kind of bookends at either end of the story. The second of these questions you'll find in verse 37. When the people asked the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Now, most Christians, most churches, most preachers, hope and pray that non-Christians will ask them this question so they can give the answer as Peter did. How to become a Christian? Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. And we long and pray for the same kind of response. 3,000 people in one day. We'd settle for 30 or maybe even three. Unfortunately, if we are honest, as far as Great Britain is concerned, very few Christians, non-Christians, are asking Christians and churches, what shall we do? And the reason for this, I would suggest, is that very few non-Christians are asking the first question that the people of Jerusalem asked the followers of Jesus on the day of Pentecost. At the beginning of the story, recorded in verse 12, here's the first question. What does this mean? Which provided the opportunity for Peter to preach his great sermon. You see... I can still remember it. As I walked back down Rose Street from that street corner, it was not with any sense of condescension towards the young man. As I passed the building with the sign that said, Charlotte Baptist Chapel, I was not comforted by the thought that usually on a Sunday, a thousand people pass through our doors morning and evening in total. But I was disturbed by the fact that hundreds of thousands of people pass these doors every year and very few stop to ask, what does this mean? You ever stood outside the chapel to watch people walk past? They kind of glance at walk past and they walk on their way. Some of you will know that some two years after I began here, um, in 1994, I think, again it was, we commissioned the Christian Research Association to undertake a survey of the congregation and we filled in a, a, a census form back and front and then a report was presented by the director, Dr. Peter Brearley, to the elders at that particular time. Those who were around at that time will remember what his findings were. There were two things that stood out. The first thing he said was that the level of customer satisfaction, or whatever the correct word is, in the congregation, you know, whether people were happy or not, he said it was one of the highest he'd seen in any church where he'd done a survey. It was in the high 80%. And then he added a comment which got us thinking, and it's been a kind of challenge to all of us since that day. He then added this comment, Charlotte Chapel is one of Edinburgh's best-kept secrets. Oh, you know where it is. And if you're a visiting Christian today, you came here because you know where Charlotte Chapel is. You talk to most people in Edinburgh, they don't know it exists. 
And our aim with our logo of conspicuous for Christ has not been to proclaim ourselves, but to proclaim Christ. And at least let people know there, there, are, there are churches, many churches now in Edinburgh, where things are happening. But having said that, I believe as we come to our 200th anniversary, 2008, uh, that we still have a long, long way to go. And we are light years away from what happened in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Now, I realize that the events on that day were unique, unrepeatable in the history of the church. I'm not expecting that we should all rush out into the streets proclaiming the gospel in languages that we've never learned. Though, as a linguist and Bible translator in Pakistan, India, Nigeria, I've often wished that I had that ability. But I am convinced about this. And if you forget everything else I've said this morning, I hope this sticks in your mind. I'm convinced about this. Where the Spirit of God, the same Holy Spirit who moved at Pentecost, is at work in an individual or in a church, it should at very least cause some people who are not Christians to ask at some time, what does this mean? Here's a summary of what I want to say this morning. Unless people ask the first question, what does this mean? They will never ask the second question, what should we do? And we will spend all our time giving the answer to people who already know what the answer is. While vast crowds of people pass by and never stop to ask, what does this mean? And I would suggest to you that as far as the church in Britain is concerned, perhaps in the West, this is largely the case. So, if this is the case, as we start a new year, what can we do to rectify the situation? How can we ensure that the needy and lost people in our society, in our city, in our neighborhood, begin to ask not only the second question, what should we do, but ask the first question which must precede it, what does this mean? There must be something about us. If God the Holy Spirit is at work in us, there must be something about us. In a spirit-filled church or a spirit-filled Christian that will cause people to ask, then what does it mean? There should be something that cannot be easily explained in human terms. As on the day of Pentecost, cynics may come up with suggestions that they were drunk. It's better than being ignored because we're irrelevant. So, what are the sort of things that should characterize a spirit-filled church? That's what I want to leave with you this morning. Now, there are all sorts of things we'll see as we come to the book of Acts, if the Lord tarries and if we continue with this series, God willing, after Easter. And I hope you'll stay with us and think this through. Um, I simply want to leave with you what I suggest are three features of a spirit-filled church. And you can add others to this. This is not a comprehensive list, but three key features of a spirit-filled church. Okay, here's the first one. The first feature is fearless witness. One of the great proofs that Jesus really did rise from the dead is the transformation of his followers. Even after several people reported that his tomb was empty and that Jesus had appeared to them, the disciples were still afraid, as John records in his Gospel. These fearful followers, John 20, verse 19, on the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked, the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. 
Yet, even after they'd seen that Jesus was alive, they were not yet ready, as we're going to see in this series next week, to become his witnesses. For Jesus told them to wait first for the promised Holy Spirit, the promised gift. Acts 1, verses 4 and 5. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you've heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The primary purpose, Jesus says, for which the Holy Spirit will be given is to enable you to be a powerful witness for Him. Power to witness. But you will receive, this is our verse for the year, look at next Sunday, God willing, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And finally, as we read on the day of Pentecost, the gift was received. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them, Acts 2 verse 4. And filled with the Holy Spirit, they left the place where they were. They went out into the streets to witness about Jesus to the amazement of the crowds who then asked, what does this mean? Now, it's hard to believe that the Peter who had recently denied his Lord three times before a servant girl is the same Peter who stood up and boldly proclaimed the message about Jesus to the vast crowds. No, he and his fellow apostles were characterized by bold witnessing as you read the rest of the chapter. And when told by the authorities to stop speaking about Jesus, he and his fellow apostles refused to obey despite threats. Acts 4, verse 19. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. Later they are flogged for persisting in preaching about Jesus, but they rejoice and continue their bold witnessing despite suffering. Acts 5, verse 41. The apostles left the Sanhedrin, rejoicing because they've been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. And should we comfort ourselves by suggesting, as I've read in articles recently, that this was limited to those first apostles, we read that after the death of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, when first fierce persecution broke out all the believers except the apostles were scattered out of the city they went everywhere proclaiming the gospel despite persecution Acts 8 verse 4 those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went and what was the result? the result was growth but many who heard the message believed the number of men grew to about 5,000 Acts 4 verse 4 Acts 6 goes on to say, So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, a large number of priests became obedient to the faith, and churches sprang up all around the Roman world, wherever the Christians went, gossiping the gospel. Fearless witness. Now, let's be absolutely honest. Fearless witness does not characterize the church of Jesus Christ in our land. Not because we're flogged or put into prison, though it might help, but because of indifference. The problem is not the fire of persecution, but the fog of apathy. I would suggest to you that we are not sufficiently gripped by the gospel, compelled by the love of Christ, and impelled by the power of the Holy Spirit. Some years ago, I read a very good article in a magazine, and I saved it, and I think I may have read it once before some years ago, but let me read it again to you, because it brought home this point very forcibly to me. It's written by a guy called Mike Kane. And it's entitled, Why I Am a Brilliant Evangelist. 
This is what he writes. I'm a brilliant evangelist. Straight up, if there were an Olympics for evangelism, I'd be looking to medal and I hardly need to train. It just comes naturally. I can't help myself. So we're at a party, some party or other. We've just met. He's explaining the route I should have taken from Wimbledon, this guy in London. And I'm not good at route talk. I just plunge straight in. Never occurs to me you might think I'm mad or odd. I just think everybody should be told. And usually, after the first initial inquiry as to whether they heard me right, they get pretty interested. I tell them my story how I was first gripped and how much it all means to me today. I talk about the bad times as well as the good. And so as to preempt the postmodernist loophole, I'm careful to insist it's not just the hobby that happens to ring my personal bell. So I swing the old meta-narrative around. How it all began over 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. It's important they understand it's not some modern, western, newfangled western con- uh, conceit. Restrict- he says reactions vary. Some say they used to be quite into it as a kid. Others talk about friends who are similarly mad and are keen to meet up and check it out more. Obviously, you need to spend a lot of time with these people. It's a whole new way of thinking. They're full of questions. But it's time well spent. And few things can compare with the thrill of the moment when they realize they need to make a commitment and they ask you to take them down to the local tackle shop to help them buy their first rod. Yes, I'm a brilliant evangelist for fly fishing. And not just fly fishing. But films I've seen, books I've read the other day, I even found myself proclaiming the good news of the great cake they do in the new cafe just round the corner. Frightens me. Why is it that with such unashamed and natural enthusiasts for the things of our lives that are quite good and so tongue-tied about the best thing in the world the good news of Jesus. I'm not suggesting, he says, that we should be forever wading in and trampling people down with the gospel when we've barely registered their name. But whatever it is, listen carefully, that thrills my heart, sooner or later, usually sooner, tends to come bubbling up to the surface. Sharing good things round is a natural sort of thing to do. So we pass on DIY tips, we recommend recipes, we tell people about the play we've seen, the restaurant we've been to, we wear the t-shirt, we fly the flag for whatever we think is right for endorsement. It's just what we like. We see a beautiful sunset and we can't keep our mouths shut. We want to nudge someone and say, wouldn't you look at that? Wonderful, isn't it? We're all brilliant evangelists. So how come we are so slow to talk about Jesus? Does the tightness of our lips betray the coldness of our hearts? Is the reason that the gospel doesn't bubble up to the surface of my conversation that in the depths of my heart I'm not gripped by its wonder? Am I actually more thrilled by fly fishing than by Christ? Do my longings for my friends center far more on their enjoyment of the weekend than on their enjoyment for all eternity of the God who made them? Found that challenging. And it speaks to each one of us. Now, it may be that you've never had an experience of Christ. You don't know what it is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that will make no sense to you at all. But for those who have claimed to know Christ, to have repented of our sins, to have been gripped by the love of Christ, is it not a challenge? Why, we're not all brilliant evangelists. Those early Christians were marked by fearless witness. So that people ask, what does this mean? And they're able to give an answer. We need to move on. Notice the second thing. 
about these early Christians which marked them out as spirit-filled. Not only fearless witness, but also, secondly, selfless generosity. What did Jesus say? What's the one thing that should mark Christians out above all else? What's the distinguishing mark of the followers of Jesus? Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By all this, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Now, the love he's speaking about is not a human love. It is a love like that of Jesus. Love to the loveless. Love to the undeserving. Love to the unresponsive. Love that lays down its life for one another. Love that forgives. Love that considers others better than yourself. Supremely, it is a love that is seen in action. The love of God is not just an emotion that God felt warm about us, seeing our plight. No, God so loved the world that he gave. And if we love like him, our love must be seen in action. And this was seen in those first Christians in practical acts of kindness that cost the giver. Acts 4.32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. Acts 4.35 and 34 and 5. There were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. It was distributed to anyone as he had need. That kind of love is unnatural. Why you see someone in the newspaper raise a couple of hundred pounds for charity and it's in the newspaper. Yet the kind of selfless generosity that the Christians showed to each other was news in the Jerusalem Times. You may remember a few years ago when we finally raised the money for the new building at, at Nidre. Uh, it was about nearly £700,000. Uh, I had a phone call from a reporter on the evening news. I don't exaggerate when I say she rang me back six times in one day to get the story straight. Uh, she rang me up and said, I hear you've raised some money for some place in Nidri. And I said, yes, it's a church. We're raising the money for it. So she said, how much money did you raise? So I said, well, it's nearly £700,000. She said, £700,000? You must have some very rich people in Charlotte Chapel. So I said, well, I'm not really sure about that. She said, well, somebody must have given a lot of money. So I said, well, I don't know, but I'll check for you. So I don't know who gives what in this church, and I have no desire to know. So I rang our friend Alistair Hay and I said, Alistair, I don't want to know who gave what, but how many of those, in that 700,000, how much of it was huge big gifts? You know, did someone give half a million and we all gave the rest? I think Alistair said there was one gift of 20, a couple of 10, and all the rest were smaller gifts by members of the congregation. All of you. So I rang her back and said, this is the story. So she said, right, she said, so what are the terms for repayment? So I said, no, there's no repayment. We, it's, they're gifts. So she said, okay. And then she rang me back again. She said, let me see if I got this right. These people gave this money with no repayment. So why did they do it? What's in it for them? There's a clubhouse for the members of Charlotte Chapel. We'll all go up to Nidring and play five-side football. I tried to explain it. It's almost impossible to explain Something like that to a person who hasn't got Christian convictions. You may have seen the headlines. Finally, the pic there was a picture in the newspaper of myself, Rory, and John Lowry. And the heading, was, uh, the heading was, Charity Giving on a Biblical Scale. Well, it's great. As Christians, we should be characterized by that. By generous giving. Giving the hearse. It's great. 
I'm so delighted that we gave nearly £10,000 for Iraqi Christians, you know, over the Christmas period while we were celebrating Christmas. But let's keep giving. Let's look out for those in need. Is our giving sacrificial or is it comfortable? Do we look out for those in need? You know, whenever this subject's raised in church, people immediately start asking questions about tithing. Listen, I've been around the block as a pastor a few times. No one has ever asked me, Pastor, well, they always ask you about tithing. Pastor, I want to know about tithing. Is it gross or net you tithe on? No one has ever asked me, Pastor, is it all right to give more than a tithe? Yes, it is. Tithes and offerings. Give what you can and give more. But it's not just money, is it? It's giving of our time, our energy. It's giving not out of duty, but out of love. It is a selfless generosity that reaches out to other people that is remarkable and people begin to ask, why do you do that? It always costs. Take it from me as a pastor, and you know as a Christian, if you've been a Christian any time in Christian service, people always ring up wanting help at the most unlikely time when you can't cope with it. It always puts you under pressure, but it's the kind of giving that's not natural. It's selfless generosity. It's costly. It's like Christ. Now, as that characterizes, people begin to ask, what does this mean? What kind of church is it where people give like that? Let's move on. Third thing. Fearless witness, selfless generosity. Third thing I want to describe as ceaseless worship. One of the things I dislike, and it's very hard to avoid the language, I've probably used it myself, is you go to a church, or particularly go to a Christian union, and the program goes on, and then somebody stands up and says, and now we will have a time of worship. What they mean is, we're going to sing, all right? And I went to myself, what were we doing the rest of the time? It's all worship. In fact, it's somewhat misleading, though, in this time where we do it, to call our services morning worship, evening worship. We call the buildings we meet in places or houses of worship. Um, in our last church, on the housing, we put up a new church on a new housing estate. And we put a, build, a sign in the foyer that said, We believe the church is not a building, but people. So this is not the house of God, but the home of God's people. And then we added, Here are the family, and there were pictures of all the members. So people came in for all sorts of reasons, the community centre as well, and saw who the family were. You see, the first Christians had no formal buildings. If we study the book of Acts, it's important to notice that. In fact, the archaeological record shows that it's around about 200 years before we find dedicated buildings for Christian worship. So where did they meet? Well, they met in the temple courts, until they were thrown out, the precincts of the temple itself. In their homes, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Acts 2.46. Where did they meet? They met daily. They met at times of crisis, when the apostles were thrown into prison. Uh, soon they began to meet on the Lord's Day, not the Jewish Sabbath, uh, but the day when Christ was raised from the dead on Sunday. Do you know when the early Christians met for worship in Sundays? They didn't get special dispensation from their employers. I've now become a Christian. I'm going to clock in late in the afternoon or I can't work today. No, the early Christians met before dawn on the Lord's Day, worked a full day, and then they met in the evenings after they'd worked a full day. And what did they do? 
They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. What I'm trying to say is that following Jesus was such a natural part of their life. Ceaseless worship, everything done for the praise of God. And the result was that people were attracted to Christ because they saw that this was so important to them and the natural part of their lives. Praising God, enjoying the favour of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So, I simply ask you, are our lives characterised by ceaseless worship to God? Is the Lord Jesus Christ the centre of everything we do? Is our identity centred around Him? What do we talk about when we meet together? When crises arise, is it natural to come together to pray and to fast? When did we last fast? Struck many years ago when I was working abroad, speaking to an engineer who worked for a company out there, and I was working with a church... And he said to me, well, I've worked it out, he said. He said, um, you're a Christian and go to church, and I'm into golf and go and play golf. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, he said, you go to church once a week, I go and play golf at least once a week. That's my hobby, that's your hobby. In other words, life is divided between the sacred and the secular between what we do in church on Sundays and what we do elsewhere. And the challenge of the early church is that being a follower of Jesus is a natural part of everything, of all of our lives. Now, there's nothing new about this. Two centuries ago here in Scotland, godly Scottish minister Horatius Bonar wrote a hymn on this theme. We don't sing it very often, maybe we should sing it more often. If, If you've been around a long time, you'll know what the words are. Fill thou my life, O Lord my God, in every part with praise, that my whole being may proclaim thy being and thy ways. Not for the lip of praise alone, nor in the praising heart, I ask but for a life made up of praise in every part. Praise in the common things of life, its goings out and in. Praise in each duty and each deed, however small and mean. Fill every part of me with praise. Let all my being speak of thee and of thy love, O Lord, Poor though I be and weak, so shall no part of day or night from sacredness be free, but all my life, in every step, be fellowship with thee. Now, when Christ is at the centre of your life, like that of ceaseless worship, praise to him, people will ask, what does this mean? Now, nearly finished, and our time has gone. Here are these three features that I've suggested, and there are others, as I've mentioned, of a spirit-filled church. Fearless witness to others. Selfless generosity to one another. Ceaseless worship to God. So that people began to ask, what does this mean? And then, what should we do? So what about us? Is this one of these mission impossible sermons? Uh, Perhaps you think I'm an idealist setting impossible standards to which no one can attain today. If so, you are absolutely right. For my purpose is not to send you home depressed into 2008, but to send you, to send me to God for help. That's the whole point. The kind of life that the early church displayed in the book of Acts is not natural. It's supernatural. It's what happens when the Holy Spirit of God is at work in an individual and in a congregation of people. It's only when we acknowledge that, humanly speaking, we cannot hope to be like those early Christians, that we seek the power and help of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who empowered them. 
And that's our challenge for this year, our verse for this year. The promise of God's power so that we might be powerful witnesses for him. And I simply say to myself, as I say to the Lord, surely if our motives are right, that others might be caused to ask questions and drawn to Christ, then God will be glorified. Surely God will not withhold his spirit. Let me conclude then with the words of Jesus, who encouraged his disciples to persist in prayer. Here's the promise of Jesus recorded again in Luke's Gospel. So I say to you, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Continuous tenses. Go on asking, go on seeking, go on knocking. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds. To him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Let's do that and ask God for his help now. Let's pray.